Once there was a time when all the elements of earth, sea, and sky lived on the land together in many, many villages. Many years ago, back in the old country, there lived a holy, sweet couple who loved each other so very much. A long time ago, in a village, somewhere in Tamil Nadu, there lived a monkey. There was once a man, tall and handsome, who met a, a woman, beautiful and elegant, and they fell in love with each other. Once upon a time, and welcome to the Story Story Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Ann Harding, and I have some stories for you. This is a podcast to hear traditional stories told by some of the best storytellers in the world. It will take you to long ago and far away and will bring you back safely. My legs were covered in bees. Buzzing, crawling, soft and fuzzy, each of them had sharp little bums. So I sat very still, except for my lips. Softly, slowly, I whispered the words that had been attracting the honeymakers. Words I had found in a book. The warmth of the day had led me outside to read a new book of fairy tales, and I liked the words so much I started reading them aloud. I was so caught up in the words that I didn't notice the low hum and the tiny bodies until they covered my legs. I stopped reading and the hum got louder. The bees started to get erratic and some strange instinct compelled me to keep reading. They settled, and while I was glad they settled, it seemed they had texted their friends because more of them were coming. This episode, we are diving into the ocean and catching a glimpse of the community below the sea. The first story is by Milbury Birch, an award-winning, internationally known performer and recording artist, as well as a monologist, playwright, and teacher of her craft. This is The Fisherman's Wife. John Merton was a fisherman. He brought up eels and elvers, little finny creatures, and great sharp-toothed monsters from the waves. He sold their meat at markets and made necklaces of their teeth for the fairs. If you asked him, he would say that what he loved about the ocean was its vast silence, and wasn't that why he had married him a wife the same? Deaf she was, and mute too, but she could talk with her hands a flowing syncopation. He would tell you that, and it would be no lie, but there were times when he would go mad with her silences, as the sea can drive men mad and he would leave the house to seek the babble of the marketplace. As meaningful as were her finger fantasies, they brought his ear no respite from the quiet. There was one time, though, that he left too soon, and it happened this way. It was a cold and gray morning, and he slammed the door on his wife, thinking she would not know it, forgetting there are other ways to hear. And as he walked along the shore singing loudly to himself so as to prime his ears and swinging the basket of fish pies he had for the fair, he heard only the sound of his own voice. The hush of the waves might have told him something. The silence of the seabirds wheeling overhead. "'Buy my pies!' he sang out in practice, his boots cutting great gashes like exclamation marks in the sand. Then he saw something washed up on the beach ahead." Now fishermen often find things left along the shore. The sea gives and it takes and as often gives back again. 
there is sometimes a profit to be turned on the gifts of the sea. But every fisherman knows that when you have dealings with the deep, you leave something of yourself behind. It was no floatsome lying on the sand. It was a sea queen, beached and gasping. John Merton stood over her, and his feet were as large as her head. Her body had a pale greenish cast to it. The scales of her fish-like tail ran up past her waist, and some small scales lay along her sides, sprinkled like shiny gray-green freckles on the paler skin. Her breasts were as smooth and golden as shells. Her supple shoulders and arms looked almost boneless. The green-brown hair that flowed from her head was the color and texture of rackweed. There was nothing lovely about her at all, he thought, though she exerted an alien fascination. She struggled for breath, and finding it, blew it out again in clusters of large, luminescent bubbles that made a sound as of waves against the shore. And when John Merton bent down to look at her more closely still, it was as if he had dived into her eyes. They were ocean eyes, blue-green and with golden flecks in the iris like minnows darting about. He could not stop staring. She seemed to call to him with those eyes, a calling louder than any sound could be in the air. He thought he heard his name, and yet he knew that she could not have spoken it, and he could not ask the mermaid about it, for how could she tell him? All fishermen know that mermaids cannot speak. They have no tongues. He bent down and picked her up, and her tail wrapped around his waist quick as an eel. He unwound it slowly, reluctantly from his body, and then, with a convulsive shudder, threw her from him back into the sea. She flipped her tail once, sang out in a low ululation, and was gone. He thought, wished really, that that would be the end of it, though he could not stop shuddering. He fancied he could still feel the tail around him, coldly constricting. He went on to the fair, sold all his pies, drank up the profit, and started for home. He tried to convince himself that he had seen stranger things in the water, worse and better. Hadn't he one day brought up a shark with a man's hand in its stomach? A right hand, with a ring on the third finger, a ring of tourmaline and gold that he now wore himself, vanity getting the better of superstition. He could have given it to his wife Mare, but he kept it for himself, forgetting that the sea would have its due. And hadn't he one night seen the stars reflecting their cold brilliance on the water as if the ocean itself stared up at him with a thousand thousand eyes? Worse and better, he reminded himself of his years culling the tides that swept rotting boards and baby shoes and kitchen cups to his feet and the fish, and the eels, and the necklaces of teeth. Worse and better. By the time he arrived home, he had convinced himself of nothing but the fact that the mermaid was the nastiest and yet most compelling thing he had yet seen in the ocean. Still he said nothing of it to Mare, for though she was a fisherman's daughter and a fisherman's wife, since she had been deaf from birth, no one had ever let her go out to sea. He did not want her to be frightened, as frightened as he was himself. But Mare learned something of it, 
For that night when John Merton lay in bed with a great down quilt over him, he swam and cried and swam again in his sleep, keeping up stroke for stroke with the sea queen. And he called out, Cold! Oh, God, she's so cold! And he pushed Mare away when she tried to wrap her arms around his waist for comfort. Oh, yes, she knew, even though she could not hear him. But what could she do? If he would not listen to her hands on his, there was no more help she could give. So John Merton went out the next day, with only his wife's silent prayer picked out by her fingers along his back. He did not turn for a kiss. And when he was out no more than half a mile, pulling strongly on the oars and ignoring the spray, the sea queen leaped like a shot across his bow. He tried to look away, but he was not surprised. He tried not to see her webbed hand on the oarlock or the fingers as sure as rackweed that gripped his wrist. But slowly, ever so slowly, he turned and stared at her and the little golden fish in her eyes beckoned to him. Then he heard her speak, a great hollow of sound somewhere between a sigh and a song that came from the grotto that was her mouth. "'I will come,' he answered, now sure of her question, hearing in it all he had longed to hear from his wife. It was magic, to be sure, a compulsion, and he could not have denied it had he tried. He stood up, drew off his cap, and tossed it onto the waves. Then he let the oars slip away, and his life on land slip away, and plunged into the water near the bobbing cap, just a beat behind the mermaid's flashing tail. A small wave swamped his boat. It half sank, and the tide lugged it relentlessly back to the shore where it lay on the beach like a bloated whale. When they found the boat, John Merton's mates thought him drowned, and they came to the house, their eyes tight with grief and their hands full of unsubtle mimings. He is gone, said their hands, a husband to the sea, for they never spoke of death and the ocean in one breath, but disguised it with words of celebration. Mare thanked them with her fingers for the news they bore, but she was not sure that they had told her the truth. Remembering her husband's night dreams, she was not sure at all, and as she was a solitary person by nature, she took her own counsel. Then she waited until sunrise and went down to the shore. His boat was now hers by widow's right. Using a pair of borrowed oars, she wrestled it into the sea. She had never been away from shore, and letting go of the land was not an easy thing. Her eyes lingered on the beach and sought out familiar rocks, a twisted tree, the humps of other boats that marked the shore. But at last she tired of the landmarks that had become so unfamiliar and turned her sights to the sea. Then... About half a mile out, where the sheltered bay gave way to the open sea, she saw something bobbing on the waves, a sodden blue-knit cap, John Merton's marker. He sent it to me, Mare thought, and in her eagerness to have it, she almost loosed the oars, but she calmed herself and rowed to the cap, fishing it out with her hands. Then she shipped the oars and stood up, tying a great strong rope around her waist, with one end knotted firmly through the oarlock, not a sailor's knot, but a love knot, the kind that she might have plaited in her hair, 
mare flung herself at the ocean. Down and down and down she went through the seven layers of the sea. At first it was warm, with a cool light blue color hung with crystal teardrops. Little spotted fish, green and gold, were caught in each drop, and when she touched them, the bubbles burst and freed the fish which darted off and out of sight. The next layer was cooler, an aquamarine with a fine falling rain of gold. In and out of these golden strings swam slower creatures of the deep, bulging squid, ribboned sea snakes, knobby five-fingered stars, and the strands of gold parted before her like a curtain of beads, and she could peer down into the colder, darker layers below. Down and down and down Mare went until she reached the ocean floor at last, and there was a path laid out of finely colored sands edged round with shells and statues made of bone. Anemones on their fleshy stalks waved at her as she passed, for her passage among them was marked with the swirlings of a strange new tide. At last she came to a palace that was carved out of coral, The doors and windows were arched and open, and through them passed the creatures of the sea. Mare walked into a single great hall. Ahead of her, on a small dais, was a divan made of coral, pink and gleaming. On this coral couch lay the sea queen. Her tail and hair moved to the sway of the currents, but she was otherwise quite still. In the shadowed, filtered light of the hall, she seemed ageless, and very beautiful. Mare moved closer, little bubbles breaking from her mouth like fragments of unspoken words. Her movement set up countercurrents in the hall, and suddenly around the edges of her sight she saw another movement. Turning, she saw ranged around her an army of bones, the husbands of the sea. Not a shred or tatter of skin clothed them, Yet every skeleton was an armature from which the bones hung as surely connected as they had been on land. The skeletons bowed to her one after another, but Mare could see that they moved not on their own reckoning, but danced to the tunes piped through them by the tides. And though on land they would have each looked different, without hair, without eyes, without the subtle coverings of flesh, they were all the same. Mare covered her eyes with her hands for a moment. Then she looked up. On the couch, the mermaid was smiling down at her with her tongueless mouth. She waved a supple arm at one whole wall of bone men, and they moved again in the aftermath of her greeting. Please, said Mare, please give me back my man. She spoke with her hands, the only pleadings she knew and the tongueless sea-queen seemed to understand, seemed to sense a sisterhood between them, and gave her back greetings with fingers that swam as swiftly as any little fish. Then Mare knew that the mermaid was telling her to choose, choose one of the skeletons that had been men, only they all looked alike, with their sea-filled eye-sockets and their bony grins. I will try, she signed, and turned toward them. Slowly, she walked the line of bitter bones. The first had yellow minnows fleeting through its hollow eyes. The second had a twining of green vines round its ribs. 
The third laughed a school of red fish out of its mouth. The fourth had a pulsing anemone heart. And so on down the line she went, thinking with quiet irony of the identity of flesh. But as long as she looked, she could not tell John Merton from the rest. If he was there, he was only a hanging of bones, indistinguishable from the others. She turned back to the divan to admit defeat when a flash of green and gold caught her eye. It was a colder color than the rest, yet warmer, too. It was alien under the sea, as alien as she, and she turned toward its moving light. And then, on the third finger of one skeleton's hand, she saw it, the tourmaline ring which her John had so prized, pushing through the water toward him, sending dark eddies to the walls that set the skeletons writhing in response, she took up his skeletal hand. The fingers were brittle and stiff under hers. Quickly, she untied the rope at her waist and looped it around the bones. She pulled them across her back, and the white remnants of his fingers tightened round her waist. She tried to pull the ring from his hand to leave something there for the sea, but the white knuckle bones resisted, and though she feared it, Mare went hand over hand, hand over hand along the rope, and pulled them both out of the sea. She never looked back, and if she had looked, would she have seen the sea replace her man layer by layer? First it stuck the tatters of flesh, and blue-green rivulets of veins along the bones. Then it clothed muscle and sinew with a fine covering of skin. Then hair and nails and the decorations of line. By the time they had risen through the seven strata of the sea, he looked like John Merton once again. But she, who had worked so hard to save him, could not swim. And so it was John Merton himself who untied the rope and got them back to the boat. And it was John Merton himself who pulled them aboard and rowed them both to shore. And a time later, when Mayor Merton sat up in bed, ready at last to taste a bit of the broth he had cooked for her, she asked him, in her own way, what it was that had happened. John Merton, she signed, touching his fine strong arms with their covering of tan skin and fine golden hair. Tell me... But he covered her hands with his, the hand that was still wearing the gold and tourmaline ring. He shook his head, and the look in his eyes was enough, for she could suddenly see past the sea-green eyes to the sockets beneath, and she understood that although she had brought him home, a part of him would be left in the sea forever, for the sea takes its due. He opened his mouth to her then, and she saw it was hollow, as dark black as the deeps, and filled with the sound of waves. Never mind, John Merton, she signed on his hand, on his arms around her, into his hair. The heart can speak, though the mouth be still. I will be loving you all the same. And of course, she did. 
The fairy tale sponsor for this episode is Doorless Towers Building Company. If you have royalty that can't stay put, or random heroes wandering into your enchanted castle to slay you or defeat your magic, this building company can help you keep them out. They will build you a tower tall and strong with nary a door to get in, but appropriate windows large enough for ventilation and to climb in and out of with ease. Doorless Towers Building Company. We can't help you get in, but we can keep those pesky heroes out. If you like storytelling, and I'm guessing you do because you're listening to this podcast, I have something else to suggest. The Appleseed Radio happens every day of the week. It's produced by BYU Radio and is available on Sirius XM as well as streaming on their website. It features storytellers from around the world, both traditional and personal stories, and it's hosted by Sam Payne, a warm and wonderful storyteller and host. Have a listen. Let me know what you think. The bees covered my body now, everything but my face and hands as I slowly, so slowly, turned the page. The story I had started reading out loud was a long one, and as I read on, so did the bees, more of them flying in, crawling around on my body. As the action picked up in the fairy tale, the bees droned a bit louder. When the princess was fighting for her life, they scurried faster, climbing over the tips of my fingers, and when the lovers were reunited... They hummed with a sigh that almost sounded like contentment. Then the story was over. The final words left my lips and I held my breath nervously. What would they do now? They began to buzz, their wings whirring fast. I tensed and waited for a sting, but none came. They shifted and hummed and the pitch went up and down as each tiny body pushed off. They all flew away and left the smell of pollen in the air. The second story is by Isabel Hauser, a gifted storyteller, harpist, and believer in fairies, and it would seem mermaids as well. This is her telling, The Mermaid of Zouk. There is a town in the heart of Switzerland, nestled between a mountain and a lake. That town is called Zouk, and many centuries ago, It consisted only of four rows of houses separated by two lanes. And the first row was built so close to the lake that you would think the houses would topple into the water if they took one more step. And all these centuries ago, there were two kinds of people living in that town. The people on the land and the people in the water. The general rule was that they knew of each other, but they didn't interact. A fisher in his boat on the water, turning around abruptly, might see a shimmering tail disappear beneath the surface of the water, a tail larger than any fish's. And a child, playing among the driftwood by the lake shore, might find a doll with seaweed for hair and tiny shells for eyes, but neither would say anything about it. Such was the general rule. They knew of each other, but they didn't interact. But, as we all know, there is one exception to every rule. In this case, the exception was the youngest daughter of the king of the lake and a young fisherman from the town of Zug. They were in love with each other, and it was a love brighter than the sun above the town 
and deeper and purer than the waters of the lake. But when the father of the princess, the king of the lake, found out, he was furious. The surface of the lake was boiling as he summoned his daughter. You have betrayed me! He roared, and waves as tall as houses crashed upon the shore. You have betrayed me, and for that you will never see your fishermen ever again. Now the princess did have a mind of her own, but she was also smart enough to know when it was better to obey her father. So without a word, she returned to her chambers, and there she wept and wept and wept. She wept and wept and wept so that the water of the lake tasted salty for seven weeks and when there were no more tears left to cry she grew quieter and quieter and thinner and thinner. Her father watched her. He watched her and he watched her and the day came when he realized that he loved his child more than he loved his rules. So once again he sent for her, but this time not a ripple disturbed the water. Daughter, he said, I have reconsidered. You may see your fishermen again, but only under my conditions. Oh, anything, father! cried the princess, her eyes lighting up. He will have to come and live with you in the lake. He has to marry you, and he is not allowed to go back onto the shore ever again. And in reply, the princess threw her arms around her father, and then she dashed out of the castle to the shore. Meanwhile, the young fisherman had come down to the shore every morning before daybreak, and did not leave his post until the sun had sunk into the horizon. His father had long given up arguing with him. His mother constantly wrung her hands in despair, and his grandmother merely looked out onto the lake every now and then and silently shook her head. Every morning he came down to the shore, scanning the lake for his side of his beloved, but to no avail. So at first, he thought it was a trick of the light when he saw her leaping from the water. But when he realized that it was her, really her, the sun rose for a second time that day. We can be together, the princess exclaimed as they hugged and kissed, and she explained to him what her father had proposed. Of course, you will need to be able to breathe underwater, she added when she was finished and produced a small flask. Drink this potion, and we can be together forever. What do you say? The young fisherman only smiled, and as a reply he took the flask from her hands, drank the potion, and followed her into the water. The two lovers returned to the castle in the lake, and the wedding celebrations lasted for three days and three nights. And if this were a happy story, this would be their happy ever after. However, life isn't always what we want it to be. And so it happened that the young fisherman soon began to miss his friends and family in the small town on the land. He grew quieter and quieter 
and thinner and thinner. And his wife watched him and watched him. And the day came when she decided that she must do something about it. And so she hatched a plan. One early morning in March, when the entire town was still fast asleep, there was a rumble deep in the earth below. The ground began to shake. The walls of the houses began to tremble. The windows began to crack. And before the inhabitants could even leap from their beds, the waters opened up and swallowed the whole first row of houses that crashed and tumbled into the lake. It was a tragedy of unparalleled proportions. One third of the town destroyed and all of its inhabitants lost to the water. The news traveled far and wide. Communities from around the entire country reached out to help recover from the disaster. If only they had known that not one life was lost. For the night before the incident, the princess had come ashore and exchanged the water in every fountain of the town with the magic potion. So when the citizens were thrown out of their beds, when their houses crashed into the lake and water came streaming in the broken windows, they were surprised to find that they could breathe underwater. And how surprised they were when they swam out of those windows and discovered the kingdom on the ground of the lake and their lost son and friend in the castle. If the wedding had lasted for three days and three nights. The celebration of the reunion lasted a fortnight, and as far as this story goes, this really was the happy ever after of the princess and her young fisherman. But after this, the people of the lake were never seen again. Months passed, months that turned into years, that turned into decades and centuries. And the people of the lake became nothing more than the stuff that stories are made of. However, I grew up in Zug, and I will let you in on a little secret. If you go down to the lake on a clear day, when the water lies as calm as a sheet of glass you can still see the rooftops of the castle glittering in the sunlight. And if you listen really closely, you can even hear the festive music from the royal court. Thank you for listening to the Story Story Podcast. Show notes and more information about the storytellers you heard today can be found at storystorypodcast.com forward slash episode 42. Show the love. Find Milbury Birch and Isabel Hauser on Facebook and the internet. Tell them you heard them on the podcast and now want to hear them tell more stories. You can find the story you heard today on Milbury Birch's CD, The Ready Heart. Isabel does not have any CDs out currently, but if you happen to be in or near Switzerland, you should attend one of her wonderful events that usually feature a harp and a story or two. You can find out more through their websites or find links at storystorypodcast.com. In Fairy Tales, the magic number is three, so I have three things for you to do. One, like and rate the show on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. Two, join the mailing list. You will get a link to the podcast delivered to your inbox, plus news and other storytelling-related goodness. Three, consider becoming a supporter. 
For as little as $4 a month, the cost of three golden apples, you help support the podcast and will get access to a story story short. The story story short for this episode is The Gentile and the Three Wise Men as told by Pam Farrow. You can find out how to support the podcast and join the mailing list at storystorypodcast.com. And a thank you as big as the blessed scent of spring to those who are donating. If you would like to stay connected, you can find me and the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Story Story Podcast or Rachel Ann Harding. Please come say hello. Check out the ads for the fairy tale sponsors and let me know the favorite story you have heard or the favorite stories of your childhood. Who knows? Maybe you will hear them here soon. Next episode is another revisiting of the classics. Interesting twists on classic stories that are humorous and thoughtful. I hope you'll join me again. And until then, live happily ever after. The wedding lasted for seven days. I know. I was there. I would cross 27 countries, wear out three pairs of boots, battle two giants, and the grandmother of all witches, Baba Yaga, before I was reunited with my frog princess. But that's a story for another time. The last thing he said before he died was a curse on anyone who would dare to go sing with the fairies. Just because a story is strange mistake. It can also be true. Excuse me.